0: We all know what it's like to anticipate something. Surely, we all can relate to that. Uh, we all know what it's like to wait excitingly. Maybe you know what it's like to dread something, which is all whole other conversation, but you all know, I think all of us know what it's like to wait expectedly and wait excitingly for something. Maybe you just couldn't wait for Sunday at 11 to come around. I hope that's real for a lot of you and maybe for all of you. But in seriousness, we all know what it's like to wait and anticipate. And I think anticipation and expectation are shared human experiences that every generation can relate to. I think from 2000 BC to 2022 AD, if you poll a group of people uh, in any corner of the world, any number of them are waiting on something that means everything to them. Everybody is waiting or has waited on something excitingly with great anticipation and with great eagerness. And, and depending on what area you are, you grew up in, your interests might be different, uh, but there are things that you all look forward to, we all look forward to, and certainly culturally and socially, uh, every generation and civilization um, ha- of people have looked forward to different things and different milestones. And we all have pre- different predetermined goalposts that people uh, look to and follow focus on and depending on when you grew up and where you grew up, um, you know, as a culture, there were things that you valued and things that you anticipated and things that you look forward to. And maybe as a family, you had things that you, you know, were excited about that would come along for each child or each person in the family. And, and there are rite of passages for every boy, every girl, every man, every woman that had been anticipated throughout history and and, and whether it's serving your country, um, getting your license uh, from graduating to enrolling somewhere, uh, purchasing something, obtaining something. We all know what it's like. I think we all can relate. We all remember what it's like to wait for something. and, And maybe you're waiting for something pretty big and pretty important right now. And and sometimes you know how long it's going to be, you know how long the wait's going to be, and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you just know it's out there somewhere, hopefully for you in the future, this is ambiguous, nondescript date that's going to come. And uh, sometimes we wait fairly short cycles, and sometimes we uh, wait very long times uh, from childhood uh, it, it on up. We are waiting for something, something uh, to get here. Now, I could probably spend a whole lot of your time really boring you talking about all the incidents. On things that I've waited throughout, waited for throughout my life. But I won't do that because most of you know where that conversation would go and most of you probably don't want to hear about it. So I'll spare you that this morning. But if you want to get the uncut version, I'll post it later and I'll go on and on about all the nerdy stuff that I anticipate and wait for and uh, have waited for and how excited I was or how disappointed I was. I'll do that later. But that's not this morning. Um, but my generation, you know, we've kind of grew up in a world where pop culture um, and entertainment industry has kind of created these hype cycles. You know, there's all always something big coming. There's always something to look forward to, something new, something exciting, something fresh or a fresh take on something, um, whether, whether it's, you know, in the entertainment industry or anything else, right? Uh, and, and as incidental as some things that we wait for are, um, anything can put, it, put its hooks in us and anybody can get strung along by something or our hearts can get strung along by something. And, you know, growing up, my grandma, Andrea, uh, uh, who Andy is every day she waited for 1 p.m. to come around because that's when the soap operas would start. And it would be from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. It was just this devastating time for me when I was staying there because I would have to go through and hear the bold and the beautiful and days of her life, whatever that mess was. If you watch those, that's great. I, you know, I'm, I'm happy for you. And I, I love when somebody dies and they come back a couple seasons later. I, I paid attention. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I don't even know if, the, the, I guess they're still going. But anyway, so if my grandmother could get excited, you know, if she could get, it was okay to wait for one o'clock to come around. You know, it's okay for me to be excited for the next movie or or game or whatever I get excited about. Uh, I think all of us, right, from childhood to adulthood, from, you know, when we're uh, teenagers to when we're seniors, there's stuff that we get excited about. And that's okay, right? That's part of being human and part of growing up and and, and enjoying the world that God's given us. Um, You know, everybody has a schedule that that we're, we're set by. Some people, they gotta be sitting in front of the TV when the game comes on. Some people, you're gonna be at that certain place every week. at the same time, enjoying the thing that you like to do, recreation you like to do. Um, Other people, right? You've got your vacations planned and your outings planned and it's something you anticipate and something you are very intentional uh, about, you know, checking that box and and going through that that exciting event, right? Um, All of us, all of us anticipate and are excited about something. We all get excited and get hyped for the things that we're waiting for. Now, whether it's a date that you're waiting for, something that's going to be delivered, We all know what that's like and we've all waited and maybe some of you are still waiting and sometimes uh, you're waiting patiently, sometimes you wait impatiently, uh, right? It'll it'll be over before you know it, right? Um, But we've all waited to mix results and and there's a mixture of emotions, nervousness, uh, excitement and everything in between. Now, I say all that to ask you this question. Have you ever waited for something that resulted in disappointment or letdown? Sure, right? Everybody has waited on something that you you didn't wait for, hoping or expecting it to be disappointing or expecting it to be a letdown. But everybody has waited on something and anticipated something and you get there or it comes to you and it's a letdown. It's a big bummer. I mean, we could go pretty in deep depth on this and some of us might end up on a couch needing to talk, right? We might need to lay down and talk about it if we really go too deep into it. Um, There's a lot of things, lightheartedly speaking, that I've waited for and I was let down by and the next day I'm over it. You know, every year I get excited that the McRib's gonna be something cool and every year I'm disappointed. But you know what? I get over it. I shouldn't get excited about a process piece of whatever that is anyway. But seriously, uh, I think every young person called into ministry... Can uh, can't wait for that first time they get to preach, even if they are nervous. Uh, every young pastor is excited about their first church, yet it, it comes along with a lot of weight attached to it as well. And I think that goes for a lot of good things that we look forward to. Um, every marriage, you know, parenting, um, all the big life events. You know, ninety nine percent of what they bring are awesome and good things. Yet there's that one percent of burden that comes along with it, and that's just part of life. Um, you, you go somewhere and you're excited to be there, but there's that stress that lingers being somewhere different. Or being outside of your element, uh, as happy as we get about things, and excited as we get about things, there's always that little bit of a burden that comes along with them, and we're used to going with that, and we're we, we're good to accept that. But I'm asking you, have you ever waited for something that, when it finally came, or when your turn finally came, and when it finally happened, it was just a big bust? Um, you know, maybe it was that first date that you went on and you thought it was going to be the, the, you know, the dream that you, you always waited for. And it wasn't, um, you know, and, and, and to be even more real, you know, a lot of us, you know, that, that first big job or that first marriage doesn't turn out to be what you thought it was going to be. And, and, and sometimes it's a nightmare and, and you have to kind of, you know, cope with that and deal with that and think, you know, how's it going to, go from here. And it might've been a dream opportunity that fell through, but uh, you thought it would be everything you dreamed for. And it just wasn't. Now we're, Where I think a lot of us can relate, especially, is we're all born into families that have different things that you know you expect of each other, and we maybe marry into families where different expectations are laid on us. Uh, You know, as we become, as we grow up and get married, have kids, and and as life changes, we all adopt and adapt different expectations. And a lot of those, uh, as we grow, we take on passions that maybe our dads or moms or our families had, uh, and, and we derive a sense of purpose from those things that you know have been important to our family families are important to our country, important to our society. And, and a lot of times when those things don't always go the way we thought they should go and they went well for somebody else, but not for us, you know, brother or sister, it went okay. And then it came to you and it just didn't work out. Or maybe your dad and your grandpa, and it was always that way for them. And then for you, it just wasn't the case or your mom and your grandma. We all have been through those situations where for us, it just wasn't what we had hoped it would be and what we had expected it to be. And in our world today, you know, we can all blaze our own trail, but a lot of us can relate to this paradigm where we kind of grow up under with certain expectations and we kind of set certain goals and we uh, really hope that we can live up to those expectations and that those things will live up to what we hype them to be. Now, uh, such was the case in ancient Israel. Uh, in ancient Israel, I think all of us know that the, the nation was divided up by tribes and each of the tribes had a very specific identity. And as they were organized into a legitimate nation, each of the tribes brought in their own backstories and kind of helped uh, you know, turn, turn the nation into what it was and, and they brought those individual uh, and those communal mindsets with them. We all know that the tribe of Judah was the tribe of kings. The, the tribe of Judah was the royal tribe. Uh, eventually all the kings and princes came yeah. <suss> from Judah. But some of the other tribes that we know less about, they had just as much uh, character and just as much uh, unique about them. Uh, The tribe of Asher uh, were uh, known for their um, expertise in horticulture, their expertise uh, in the culinary craft, and and they were kind of the group that when you went to a festival, it was always the tribe of Asher that was going to bring the best, uh, the the sweetest, and and all the good stuff that you would want to eat. Uh, The the tribe of Issachar was known for being a cut above the rest when it came to skill And innovative labor. All the new inventions came from Issachar. All the hardest workers came from Issachar. If you were starting a business, you wanted to hire a son of Issachar. Um, The tribe of Zebulun uh, was known as a seafaring people. They were shipbuilders. They were sailors. They were the ones you went to if you wanted to take a trip. And if you wanted to get out on the sea and not sink, you would want a boat that the Zebulun uh, people built. So, each tribe um, had a certain flair to it, and the kids brought up in that particular area would likely find their future uh, for, for the people of Asher. It would be probably uh, and, and, and you know you know uh, cooking and, and and being chefs and, and and taking on that trade for the people of Issachar. it was rolling up your sleeves and getting dirty and building stuff for the, for the people of Zebulun. it was you know building ships and helping people get from one place to another. Uh, if you were born into that tribe, uh, nobody made you go down that path, but it was kind of what was expected of you and it was kind of what you wanted to do with your life. Uh, if you were in the tribe of Judah, uh, even if you weren't the next king, you probably could be the next prince or you could probably be one of the administrators in the kingdom of Israel. So uh, even though there weren't obligations, there were a lot of people uh, who, there were a lot of tribes that had that, that unique flair that wanted their kids and their grandkids to live up to that, uh, those expectations. And a lot of people wanted to make their families proud. Now there was one tribe wherein anybody and everyone born into it uh, could look forward to the very same life. Uh, There was not an option to opt out of it. There wasn't an opportunity elsewhere. If you were born to this tribe, um, your career was gonna be in a very specific field with a very specific environment that you would be immersed into. And that tribe was none other than the tribe of Levi. Now the tribe of Levi was selected to be the priestly tribe of Israel. Mainly because Levi is the tribe in which Moses and Aaron were from. And it's from them, the nation came together, but not structurally or as a government, but as a worshiping people, as a people that as they begin to know the Lord, it was thanks to Moses and Aaron that they receive revelation from God and began to know what it meant to know God and receive the law from God and received all the things as as, as, as required to approach God. Uh, Moses received that revelation, but right beside him in speaking for him. Remember Moses didn't like to, wasn't a public speaker. He stuttered. He was a little bit shy. So when you read the Old Testament and you read about Moses speaking to the people, it's really Aaron who's always doing the speaking. It was Moses kind of communicating to Aaron. Moses was always there beside. Aaron, but Aaron was his mouthpiece. Aaron was the orator. Aaron was the bold one. Aaron was the one just as bold as Moses. that lifted up his hand and his voice and got the people's attention. So Aaron was uh, the first and original high priest of Israel. He and his son served as the nation's first family of priests as the tabernacle was built and as the worship system was put into place. So it it was from Aaron's family and his greater tribe, Levi, that the priesthood would continue to come from. And obviously, there would be more people born than there were need for priests. So some, a very selective group of men were called upon to be the priests. But every man and every woman, every boy and every girl born to the tribe of Levi would automatically be enlisted as servants and ministers in the temple and in the temple ministry. So from priest priest and altar attendants to worship leaders and door holders. Levites were a people all about the tabernacle and later on the temple. So if you were born into the family of Levi, you, you, you didn't have a choice. You were going to be part of the worship team. You were going to be part of the the, the attendees in the temple. You were going to be one of the ministers, one of the people that helped keep the house of God together. You were going to live that lifestyle and you were going to be in that lifestyle forever. There wasn't a way out that was your future again. And you might think, well, I don't know about that, but they really, and we'll talk about it, they enjoyed this so much. And they were a family of people. They were a tribe of people that truly delighted in serving God. Part of how Israel was set up uh, with the tribes receiving an allotment of land, saw the 11 tribes dividing up the territory. But if you know your Bible, Levi did not receive any land. The land was divided up, to the 11 tribes, but the 12th tribe, Levi, did not receive any land. If you look in your back of your Bibles and you look at how the map is laid out, you'll see the different names, Dan and Judah and Benjamin and Issachar and Zebulun, but you will not find Levi anywhere in bold because they did not get any land. And with that, they didn't receive any other of the material blessings that the people of Israel split apart. Levi had something greater. Levi had something immaterial. Levi had something purely spiritual. Numbers 18. Says of Levi, or you can look at this on your own. Uh, this is what God said to Aaron in Numbers 18: You shall have no inheritance of land; neither shall any portion of the land be given to you. Here's what God told the people. God told Aaron, and God told the people of Levi: I am your portion. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Hey. Aaron, your family's not getting any land. And I know there are people in the room that thought, man, that, that's a bummer. I want the land. I want to build something. I want to have something. Listen, Aaron, you and your family, y'all are not going to get any land, no material resources or inheritance. Look look here, Aaron, and listen to me, Levi. I am your inheritance. And your inheritance among the people of Israel. God told them in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse nine, the Lord is your inheritance. Now I'm sure there were people in the room that said, come again. And I'm sure some of us think, how could you just be content with that? I mean, they don't get anything. No land, no lakefront property, no vacation property. They don't, get a, you know, they don't get to own a piece of this and have a bunch of that and store a bunch of that stuff. They did not get any of those things. They received a purely spiritual inheritance. Their inheritance was the Lord. Now, in case you didn't know, and this is free for the whole message. We'll get to this later on in the month. The tribe of Levi was a prototype of and a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. Our inheritance is not physical. It is not material, even though some try to make it that. Our inheritance is spiritual. It is not of this world. It is much better than that. Now, the truth, that doesn't stop people from trying to place us within the old covenant and within the old parameters and trying to make it a physical, material blessing. But let me be loud and clear. The church of Jesus Christ is in the spirit of Levi. Our inheritance is of the Lord. So you could almost say the people of Levi had to lose their life to find it. And boy, did they find it. The Levites had their own code, their own rule, their own order of worship, prescription for how things had to be done in the tabernacle and later on the temple for that matter, they also got their own book of the Bible. If you're familiar, there's Genesis, there's Exodus, and there's Leviticus, L-E-V-I, Levi, the, Le- the code of the Levites. That's the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the book on how to approach God and how to worship him in holiness and impurity. And it's for that reason the Levites gave themselves fully to the things of God, the temple and the ministry. It was their entire life, it was their bloodline, it was their heartbeat. And I'm sure that, that that mainly that many that grew up in the Levitical tribe weren't as passionate as others, but something about the Levites suggested that they truly understood the joy and that came from serving God, that we don't read anywhere about the, the Levites burning out. We don't read anywhere about the Levites quitting ministry. There's no record of that in the Bible where a Levite said, hey, I want out of this. They truly relished and enjoyed their inheritance. They knew it was greater than any other treasure of the world they weren't jealous of judah they weren't jealous of zebulun they weren't jealous of asher they loved their inheritance because it was the best you could get and you could not buy it and you could not earn it it was from god for a very special people now that that'll preach if you really want to go down that road They enjoyed an inheritance that may not have been material, but let me just say this very clear it was just as real and it was far more fulfilling than their cousins in the other tribes. It was just as real as the land and the riches and the pleasures, but it was far more fulfilling. Many of the Psalms that were not written by David, really, most of them aren't written by David, they're written by the sons of Korah. If you see, if you read in the little fine print in most Bibles, you'll see it said a song of the people of Korah or a song uh, of the sons of Korah. And those Psalms communicate uh, the delight they found in serving the Lord. There were four different uh, subsets of the tribe of Levi and the Koathites, or the Korah, people of Korah. They were the ones who wrote the songs and led the music and taught people how to get a hold of God through song and through worship and through praise. And Psalm 84 is one of their, one of their best, I think, and it really describes how passionate they were. So when we read about uh, how, when we read them describe how much they enjoyed worship, this isn't just people who went once a week. And and I want you to just get a hold of this. This isn't people who said, "Hey, I really like going to church on the weekend." These are. This is from a people who lived there. I mean they had a tent behind it they had their own room but it wasn't a mansion I'll say that and it wasn't a, nice, a nicest house as the people of Judah or the people of Dan or, 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 or Benjamin had it was a tent they were cared for they were provided for they didn't have to pay for anything their amenities were part of the deal right when you gave to the tabernacle or the temple you were keeping the people that worked there up right that was part of the plan and part of their inheritance But when they write about how lovely are the courts of God and how great it is to be in the house of God, this is from people who live there. What does it say? How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord. My soul longs, yes, it faints for the courts of the Lord my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God these were a people who their entire life was worshiping and serving the Lord and I'll be real I know that doesn't appeal to everybody I know some of y'all hey you got a life and that's okay but this is not something that, that that is unobtainable this isn't something that is with beyond the reach of normal people. This is something that an entire tribe of people, a predecessor of the church, they had a hold of it and they relished in it and they loved it. Down in verse number 10, I love this. You, the song, of course, there's a song that's written inspired by this. For a day in your court is better than a thousand. And we usually put the word elsewhere in there. I would rather be a doorkeeper and the house of God than dwell out there in the tents of wickedness. So this is the Levites' life. Some of them were worship leaders. Some of them were doorkeepers. Some of them literally all they did was open the door and they watched people walk in and they watched people walk out and nobody ever so much has said thank you to them, but they did it and they loved it. They loved it so much. But that's the thing. As immaterial as their passion was, it was very much tied to a physical place. It was tied to the temple that they built in Jerusalem, to the literal gathering of people, to the physical house of the Lord. And it said of the Levites in Psalm 69, the zeal of the house of God has consumed for it they had a deep and genuine affection and adoration for God so if you know the Old Testament story the nation drifted from God as time went on as they were established and prosperous as there were people who had other things going on they turned away from God and they lessened their attention towards him the Levites kept everything functioning they kept the temple marching forward Uh, as the rest of the nation started going the wrong direction the Levites kept the temple shining bright that was the case for the most part until 605 BC, and a very important date in history, in biblical history. In 605 BC, the Empire of Babylon marched and besieged Jerusalem. And after years of standoff and on and off war, Israel became a vassal state, which meant basically was a colony of Babylon. When Nebuchadnezzar invaded the country, invaded another country, his practice was to go into the temple of whatever God that the nation served, he, was, he would take the idols and the images of the temple and would take them back to his temple and lay them out before his God, Marduk, as a way of saying, hey, I won. But the problem with the Jerusalem temple was there were no idols or no images in there. So instead, Nebuchadnezzar took all the priests captive when he invaded the land. All the Levites, And all their utensils and all their robes and everything. He took everybody that worked and lived in and around the temple with him. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you know that he also took the sons of Judah. He took the kings and the princes and all the people of the administration. When the Babylonian takeover, uh, essentially, it shut down the kingdom of Israel, but it also shut down the temple. It shut down the Jewish worship experience. So in 605 B.C., all the royal and religious figures, figures and officials and families were exported. All the sons and daughters of Judah and all the sons and daughters of Levi were exiled to Babylon. They were taken, the princes and the administration of Judah, they were taken to the capital. And they were assimilated into the government. They were given a new name. They were taught a new language. Many of them were, um, were, were, were they went through a pretty rough experience like Daniel They were brought in and they were made basically, you know, pawns in the Babylonian administration because running a big empire, you needed some of the people from local areas to help you know how to run that place. But all the people of Levi were put into the slums, the refugee camps, about 20 miles south of Babylon, alongside the river Kadar. All the tribe of Levi was relocated by a river down south of Babylon, placed in refugee camps until they knew what to do with them. They were definitely, they would not be freed, but they either were going to be made slaves or they would be put to death if they were deemed useless or uncooperative. So all the Levites would have been captured and relocated. And, and I can't begin to describe to you the discomfort and the panic and the devastation that would have came over this people. They were so used to a particular setting. Their temple, they had meticulously cleaned and, been, and, and kept pure purity habits. Uh, there, there's a whole side story about how this would have triggered all their OCD behavior. But honestly and sincerely, the people lived to serve the Lord. Yahweh was their whole world from birth to death. There was nothing else that their hearts beat for. And yeah, the exile and warfare was hard on everyone, but it was especially unsettling and gut-wrenching for the Levites. Now, I felt like this prelude was necessary because I want us to understand as best we can what it was like to be a Levite in 605 BC and what it would have been like to be a Levi Levite, for that next almost century, as your life would have been in the refugee camps, in the slums, down by a river, while the rest of your nation was being taken over and eventually destroyed, you would either be made a slave or you would be killed. If you refused to worship one of the foreign gods, you would be killed on the spot. These people that their entire life were about singing to God, serving God, exalting God. Their entire life was about being in the house of God, leading the people of God in worship. They were ripped from that and relocated. But we started our talk about anticipation and expectation, and there was one Levite specifically that I want to focus on even further, because his situation was maybe the most devastating. In the time of exile, there was a certain Levite who had just turned 30 years old. And if you know anything about that number, it's significant because at age 30, if you were, of, if you were qualified to be a priest in the house of Levi, you were trained and you were enrolled and anointed and ordained as a priest for Israel. Only Levites could be priests. Not all Levites were priests. They all served the temple, but specific priests, men in the tribe of Levi were ordained as priests at age 30. And beginning at age 25, you would be rigorously prepared for. You would fast and you would pray and you would study and you would train and you would shadow priest. You would spend night and day doing everything to prepare for this day. And sometime during your 30th year, you would be ordained and you would be enrolled into the priesthood. So in 605 BC, That would have been the year or around the time that one particular Levite turned 30. And his name is Ezekiel. Ezekiel's entire life would have been preparation and anticipation for this time in his life. Getting to serve as a priest was the highest of honors in ancient Israel. Priests got to experience the presence of God in ways that nobody else could or ever would imagine. There was a convoluted and, and, and precious process to get to this point. Those that did the work and prepared would be tasked to intercede for the whole nation and given the privilege to enter into the holy of holies where the presence of God was made known to way in ways that nobody had ever experienced anywhere else or would ever experience anywhere else. Ezekiel could not wait for his birthday. There would have been nerves, of course, but the hype and the excitement and the opportunity was a rare honor. Who knows, maybe he would get to be a high priest one day. Maybe he would get to honor the annual sacrifice and Passover and the day of atonement. We may not relate to his unique anticipation, but we all know what it's like to dream and wait and hope for that big, awesome day. And finally, Ezekiel was going to have his day. That is until Israel faced the darkest day of its life of his existence. And many Israelites were uprooted and taken from their land. Ezekiel got to celebrate his 30th as a captive in a refugee camp where there was no temple, no worship, nothing to celebrate. The presence of God, the power of God seemed as far away as possible. The promises of God seemed as unfulfilled and broken as possible. It's hard to imagine the emotions that he was dealing with. But needless to say, I think it's safe to assume that he had never faced such disappointment. He had never been let down like this in his life. And not only was he burdened with his own disappointment, but he felt the entire nation's fear and dread and sorrow. I can't express how downtrodden and hopeless the people would have been. How devastated the nation was. You have to understand that Israel was a covenant people. They operated under the promise of God. He, they were the chosen people of God. They always knew there were consequences of sinning and rebelling, but God always bailed them out. He was always gracious. He always protected them. And they believed that it was so important, it was so vital to their covenant to be in the land. God gave that land to Abraham. So they couldn't be Israel if they weren't in the land that he gave to Abraham. So much of their identity was rooted to the land. Their entire faith was connected to a temple that could only be built in a certain place in the land where Abraham sacrificed to God long ago. So all that was gone. So you got to imagine there was no category for this kind of reality. That they always thought they would be in a certain place. They would always have a certain routine. They would be people that would worship in a certain place. They did not have a plan B. There's no backup plan in the Bible. They didn't feel like they needed to have a backup plan because they thought they would always be in the right place at the right time with the right circumstances. But all of a sudden, all of that stuff was taken away. And nobody was more affected than the Levites and nobody would have felt more lost and cratered than Ezekiel. All that makes what Ezekiel writes about in his exilic journal all the more astounding and remarkable. And listen closely. What makes what happened, it makes what happened to him so very inspiring and it proves that there is a hope that is not of this world available to you and me even to this day. They thought the exile was the end. Ezekiel had zero confidence in anything good coming from the mess he and the nation were in. But little did he know, and little did they know that what they were about to experience was a picture of something that was way better than they thought life could be. It's a picture of what we get to enjoy, but we'll get to that later. For now though, I wanna wrap up this series introduction with a look at Ezekiel's introduction. Ezekiel 1 verses one through three. And there's one word that is so remarkable in in these verses that I hope, I hope we can get the weight of it today as we close. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, that's Ezekiel's 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Cabar, that the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, underline the priest, the son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kabar and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Maybe your translation says there upon him, but emphasis on there, as in by the river Kabar. Now this, Ezekiel 1-3 is probably not on your go-to list of verses that you quote and recite when you feel down. But I promise you verse 3 should be at the very top now that you know the context. And there's two pillars to this, to how amazing this verse is. Number one, it says the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest. And here's the thing, he wasn't a priest based on their Levitical code. He had not been ordained. He had not been given a chance to serve. The temple was desecrated before he even turned 30. But listen here, in the eyes of God, in the kingdom of God, Ezekiel had always been and would always be a priest set apart for God. He just didn't know it yet. His priesthood is not going to look like any other priesthood that's ever written about in the Bible. He was in an unclean place. He was in an unholy place. He had no temple. He had no sacrifices. He had nothing that the Levites thought you needed. Listen to that. He thought that I'll never be able to do what I've been called to do because I'm not there where it used to happen and I'm not going through the motions that it used to be required. I'm in a strange land, in a strange place, in unholy circumstances, but God's word comes to him in the refugee camp, in the slum, and God calls him a priest. And here's the second important part of the verse. The hand of the Lord was upon him there. And, and, and in your Bibles, if you underline or highlight, please emphasize there. There by the Kabar River, there in the refugee camp, there in captivity. There was no temple, no sacrifices, no ceremonies, no formality. There was nothing holy or pure about that place. But there, God's hand was on him to anoint him and appoint him and use him. There. Now what follows is an amazing, overwhelming revelation God gives to Ezekiel. He sees the throne of God descend from heaven into his midst. And and I mean, if you read the whole chapter, and I hope you do, this is like the burning bush turned up to a thousand. This tops what Moses saw on Mount Sinai. By all means, this was more than anybody ever experienced in the temple. I hope you read this sometime today, this week, but look down at verse 27 through 28 jumping in mid 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 verse Ezekiel says, I saw, verse 27, the next to last line, I saw as it were the appearance of fire with brightness all around it, like the appearance of a rainbow in the cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It was a rainy day. It was a day of dispensation and a day of disappointment. But there in the midst of that rain and in the midst of that cloud was the brightness was the glory of the lord now that's not used coincidentally that's not a fluffy description the glory of god was reserved for the holy of holies ezekiel was in the unholy of unholies if there was such a place he and all the levites were in a slum camp all the things of god had they'd ever known had been tarnished he finds out later the temple had just been burnt to the ground But because of this experience, he was not devastated. He was just beginning to realize the true reality of serving God, knowing God, and experiencing God. Listen here. There in the glorious ruin of Israel's kingdom, Ezekiel began to experience a true relationship with God and he found a true entrance into the kingdom of God. He didn't have a temple. He didn't have an altar. He didn't have a worship service. He didn't have any of the things that he thought he needed. It was there. What does the verse say? There the hand of God was on him. It was there. There. He received this revelation. God reminded him that he was still a priest, but the altar of service and sacrifice was wherever he was, wherever he chose to bow and worship. You know what that means for me and you? The New Testament tells us that we are, we are all Ezekiels in our generation. No matter your circumstances, no matter the situations that may be ideal or easy or distracting, all of us are priests set apart for God wherever we are, especially when it seems like there's no way that's going to happen. Listen to what Peter wrote to the Christians in Rome. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse three is true about you. Wherever you are, yes, even there, especially there. We long for the good old days and I wish they would come back for everybody's sake, but listen, they probably aren't. They probably aren't. There, the hand of God was on him. If there's ever been a generation of Christians that I think have an Ezekiel invitation available to them, it's you and me. Right here, right now. Would it be great if the country was like we thought it should always be? Yeah, but it probably isn't ever going to be that way. And maybe, maybe we need to quit waiting for things to be ideal. Because here's Ezekiel in a slum camp in slavery. His home had just been burned down. The temple had just been desecrated. And yet it was there that God's hand was on him. Over in chapter 2, the Bible says, God said to him, Son of man, stand on your feet. I will speak to you. The Spirit spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet and I heard him who spoke to me. Uh, Listen, God was not just with him, God was within him. That's Christianity, right? That's our reality. He got a taste of it. At this point, God calls Ezekiel not not just to be a priest, but to be a prophet. Prophets not just see the future, but they proclaim the truth of God to a generation that has rejected it. So Ezekiel would not just be set apart for God, but he would stand up for God and stand out for God. All of this was way more than he ever would have experienced as a random priest. And he didn't expect it to see it as a captive. The Bible says that later on he was so overwhelmed it took him a week to process it all. Over in chapter three, verse 17, it says that God called him and says, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. God made Ezekiel a watchman for his generation to be be on the lookout for a people who were doubting and disconnected from what God offered them. Listen, that was 99% of his generation. God would use Ezekiel to be a light to a generation, to show them that, that wherever they were, no matter their circumstances, no matter how disappointed they may have been with their lives, God wants to offer them an experience of a lifetime. And the same is true for you and me today. So I know Ezekiel's not, always, not on everybody's top shelf of books to go study about, hey, how to live as a Christian in a world that's not always easy, but this should be on everybody's top shelf. Ezekiel 1.3, the hand of the Lord was upon him there. The hand of God is upon you here. Here. As unideal as things may get, right here, right now. You may not feel it, you may not see it, but you can receive it from God. Ezekiel 2, verse 2 is true for us. God says the spirit will enter us and he calls us to stand up on our feet and be ready to stand out for God. In closing, Ezekiel three twenty two says, the hand of the Lord was upon me there. He'll repeat this a lot in this book, but I want you to notice that. The hand of the Lord was there upon me. So when he says there, he's really wanting you to think, wow, right there in the most unlikely of places. The hand of God was on him. Arise and go out into the plain and there I will talk to you. And it says, I saw, so I rose and I went out to the plain, beheld the glory of the Lord like the glory which I saw by the river Kabar, and I fell on my face. And maybe today we need to fall on our faces and maybe we we need to reset our expectations. He continually uses that word there. It wasn't a temple. It wasn't a holy place. It wasn't the right place at the right time. Everything was wrong and unideal about that place, but it was there that God offered him an experience of a lifetime, an experience like none other. And it's here that God is doing the same for us today. So the question over you and me today is, will we hear his voice and will we trust his plan today, right here, right now? Will you step out and believe that God has made you a priest in his kingdom to set apart for him, to walk with him? God has made you a prophet to your generation to stand out and to stand up for him right here right now if you're willing to allow God to redeem your circumstances and show you and give you entrance to an experience like none other to the kingdom of God here on earth maybe you didn't realize this was what was available to you but by the authority of God's word and the hope of the gospel it is it always was and it always will be if we will just lift our eyes and see the glory of God over us today inviting us and bidding us to come and behold this experience with God. By faith in him, our lives can be transformed, set apart so that we might stand out. The question is, will you step out today and every day and believe that God can anoint you and appoint you right where you are for the plans he has for you? Ezekiel chose to say yes. What will you say? What will you say? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the awesome story of Ezekiel. He came, in a, came up in a family that had a lot of expectations and he had everything set for him. He was so excited about his life as a priest in your kingdom. But it didn't work out that way. And a lot of our lives don't work out that way. And we wait for everything just to be exactly as we would love it to be. And and maybe it will be for some, but most of us, it's not gonna be that way. And God, it's not because you don't love us. It's because you love us so much. You don't want us to get distracted by the wrong things. Right here today, the hand of God is upon your people. Would you raise up a generation? Would you raise up men and women? priests and prophets in the kingdom of God to set apart their lives and to stand up and stand out as your light. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.